Stanley's. I think it's an Andy Stanley quote where he says, take your kids to a church that doesn't teach them to hate church. So I'm thankful for our excellent children's ministry here at Bunkton Wesley. And if you're new uh, to our church in the last uh, year or so, you might not be aware that the Wesleyan churches of Atlanta, Canada, and Maine have a summer camping ministry on the uh, beautiful St. John River in the booming metropolis of Browns Flat, New Brunswick that you've never heard of. There's an Irving in a produce store that sells ice cream. That's all you need to know. And Browns Flat. And yeah, you come down over the hill in Browns Flat and into this beautiful camping ministry of the Wesleyan Church called Beulah Camp. Uh, started in fans of Beulah Camp. Uh, it started in 1894. There's a, a large, historic, gorgeous tabernacle that seats about 1,400 people. Uh, you can go to the website, BeulahCamp.com, to find, there, there's a map on there that'll get you there. You can see all the services and the activities, the special speakers, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, well worth the drive, about an hour and 45 minutes. Um, I would encourage, you can go through St. John if you want. It's a much prettier drive if you cut through Norton and go through Belle Isle and Hatfield Point and across the Evandale Ferry and down to Beulah Camp. Stay on the 124 and you'll find it. Does that make sense? Get off the highway at Norton, stay on the 124, and, and you'll find it. Um, there's, there's children's ministry and youth ministry. And the music is incredible. The, 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 the preaching is average, and it's, all, it's a really, it's a great experience. It really, really is. Uh, Beulah generally uh, begins the first Friday of July. Uh, this year, uh, uh, this coming Saturday, uh, a week from yesterday, they're having a big gospel concert day. Uh, a gospel group called, from Nashville called the Martins are going to be there. They're having a big barbecue. Um, they're having a big flea market on that Saturday and a whole bunch of fun stuff. And then the services begin um, Sunday morning. But you won't be there Sunday morning. You'll be here with me. And, uh, but go down in the afternoon, evening service. Go down during the week. Uh, that's Beulah Camp. Our youth and children's camps... Uh, we actually own, the Wesleyan Church of Atlantic Canada, Maine, owns an island in the St. John River called Caton's Island. And so we, we take the kids over to the island. They cannot get off. And uh, that's where they have their summer camps right there on Caton's Island. And so that's the camping ministry of the Wesleyan Church, a couple of really, really cool places. We're wrapping up our current series called Anchors. Next week, we start our summer series, which is called Bonfires, and the, the, the subtitle of the Bonfire series is Some Stories Never Grow Old. You know how, you know, you're around the bonfire, and you keep telling the same old stories over and over and over, and what we're going to do for the summer, starting in Genesis, we're going to go through, like, the big blockbuster stories uh, throughout Scripture. That's what we're going to be doing for the summer. We've got some great speakers who are going to be here, like Reverend Mike Tapper is going to be preaching. <laughs> the easy way to get applause out of you is just say Mike, Mike's name and get applause. Uh, Lennett Anderson is going to be here. <laughs> Laurel Buckingham is going to be preaching this summer. I'm checking to see if Mrs. B is clapping. Did you applaud your husband preaching here this summer? Uh, and others, so that's going to be a, a lot of fun. And we're going to have a real bonfire in the atrium serving s'mores every Sunday. No, I made that up. Okay. That's like you can't have a fire in the atrium. What are you thinking? All right. So we're finishing our anchor series. We've been talking about the big, heavy 
truths that you can attach your faith to, that you can attach your life to. And these are the big things that will hold you in any storm. Nothing good happens when you are drifting. Drifting often ends in disaster. You won't drift closer to Jesus. If you let your life drift, you, we all know what happens when we let our lives drift. I was speaking to our seniors group a couple of weeks ago, and I told them about uh, one summer that I went to sea with my father for a summer job. And uh, we worked with my dad, and we did all kinds, of, all kinds of neat things. And one trip, we were towing a barge from Halifax to Montreal, and we got in a storm in the St. Lawrence River, and we lost our tow. The tow came, the cables came off this barge. And so the barge is adrift in a storm in the St. Lawrence. And uh, we're out there uh, trying to, trying, have you ever tried to catch a barge in a storm in the St. Lawrence? We're out there trying to, trying to uh, lasso this thing with these big, heavy tow cables that are made out of uh, metal rope that's about this thick around. Imagine you're trying to heave this and trying to catch this barge. And it's not working, and the wind is blowing, and the seas are raging, and the, and the barge is drifting closer to shore. And I'm out on the deck with my cousin, and we're trying to, trying to get this thing uh, connected again. And, and I'm, the, what was happening was the, the barge would be up when the, when the boat was down, and the boat would go up when the barge was down. And we're doing this number, right? Are you, anybody getting seasick? And we're doing this number. And I, and I start thinking to myself, I'm about 18 years old and, and brain dead. And I get, you know where this is going, right? I get thinking to myself, you know, if I time it just right, I think, like, if we're doing this, if I time it just right, I think I can jump. Did I mention we're in a storm in the St. Lawrence? And, um, and so I, I jumped from the ship to the barge, and my cousin's eyes were like this. And then he throws me these tow cables, and we get everything, everything connected again, and then I jump off the barge back to the ship and uh, save the day. Couldn't wait to get up to the, the wheelhouse to uh, hear words of affirmation because I knew that my father would be watching the whole thing. And I, and I couldn't wait to get up there to the wheelhouse to hear him tell me, like, that was the most amazing thing I ever saw in my whole entire life. Ah! And I walk in the wheelhouse and he says, that's the last trip you ever take with me. <laughs> Fired. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I don't want to go to sea anyhow. I'm called to be a preacher. Well, that's my story about drifting. Nothing good happens when you drift. In Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus with loaded questions in order to embarrass him, uh, catch him, kind of trip him up, and also to get, him say, to get him to say something publicly that would implicate him and, and would, would, would rile everyone up to the point that, uh, that they could ultimately... Um, arrest him. And so the first thing the Pharisees did was they, they sent in their disciples, the young guys, and they said, okay, you guys go and ask him a trap question, and uh, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. And they couldn't get the job done. And so they take it up a notch, and the next time, they, they send in one of their heavy hitters. They send in one of their lawyers. They send in this lawyer with this ultimate, you know, trap 
question that's going to catch Jesus uh, saying something publicly where they're going to be able to arrest him. They're going to they're trap him in, in a way and get, get him to make him conflict with himself and uh, make him dishonor our Jewish laws in front of the public. And they think they have him. You see, the Pharisees were high on religion and low on relationship. They were high on religion and low on relationship. Because if you don't genuinely pursue Jesus and get to know Jesus, you'll start to see him as a, as a rule keeper. You know, just somebody who tells you what you can do and what you can't do. And that's not Christianity. That's legalism. And when Jesus realized that he's being trapped by this, this lawyer, he throws out two massive anchors, two big heavy anchor points for our faith that will hold us in any weather, whatever life throws at us. So it's Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to pick it up in verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees with his reply, they met together to question him again. And one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. The Pharisees had found, they had counted 613 laws in the Old Testament. And they knew every single one of them by memory. In fact, uh, most of them would have had all 613 of these laws drilled into them since their childhood. They were experts on these things. Some of the laws carried more weight than others, but they, were, they, they resisted, they were hesitant to, to actually rank the laws. They didn't want to do that because as soon as you start ranking them, it just opens the door for, for, for groups to, to argue and to disagree over how things are ranked and all of that. Or if you rank the laws, then it, 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 it can cause uh, some justification for well, getting away with some of the lower laws and, and, then, uh, and, and only obeying the higher ones. So they didn't do that. They didn't rank the laws. They just treated them all the same. In other words, don't break any of them. They're all equally important. But, uh, but they, they were weighted differently, if that makes sense, because they understood that obviously committing murder is not as serious as cooking a young goat in its mother's milk. Ooh, that is one of the laws. And so this seemed like the perfect trap. There's no way that Jesus can skate through this one without offending someone or implicating himself to such a degree that the mob would, would go nuts and they would shout for his arrest. Now, quick side note. Jesus didn't answer every question, and you don't need to either. When people, uh, you know, when people are firing questions about, well, why do you believe this, and what about that, and you don't need to answer everyone's questions. Jesus didn't do that. Sometimes he answered a question with a question. He, he gave the, the person who was asking another question, and sometimes he just didn't answer it at all. But this time, Jesus answers them because he has a really good answer to their question, and he's going to leverage this moment. 
They want him exposed for who he truly is, and that's exactly what Jesus intends to do. He wants them to see him for who he truly is. Just for context, let's look back at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus said about the law in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that he didn't come to abolish, he came to accomplish. This is what Jesus does. He fulfills he takes things that are limited on their own and he fills them with purpose and with meaning. This is what he does when this lawyer approaches him with a trap question. When he approaches him in, in, in public with all of his friends looking on, Jesus takes a question that is meant to harm and he turns it into something good. And his answer exceeded anything that they ever possibly could have imagined. They didn't imagine this answer or they never would have asked the question. Now think about this. Jesus fulfills. He fills full. He fulfills. God has infinitely more for you than what you can possibly imagine. God doesn't want to give you just enough. He wants to exceed all of your expectations. You can come to God with any question with any situation, with any challenge, and you will find that his grace and his supply and his love are always more than what we could ever imagine. God is not stingy. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said that the thief has come to, to steal and rob and destroy, but that Jesus' purpose, his purpose, is to give us a rich and satisfying life, an abundant life. When Jesus answers their question, which, is, which of the commandments is, is the greatest, he gives them more than what they asked for because he always exceeds our expectations. So of all the 613 laws, which one is most important? If we can only keep one, Jesus, which one is it? And we're going to get Jesus' answer. We're, we're going to get to the answer here in a minute, but one more side trail. Some people are like this they're like the Pharisees. They're like this lawyer. They're, they're just looking for a line. Like, how good do I have to be? Where's the line? Like, do I, have to, do I have to do everything? Do I have to keep all of God's commands? Like, can I, can I not just get, you know, can you just show me where the line is so I can get close to the line and then I can, you know, I can have it both ways. I can enjoy this and that. But as long as I'm close to the line, Line watching. What do I need to do to get into heaven? I'm a good person. I don't hurt others. I don't do this or I don't do that. I'm certainly not as bad as so-and-so. Where's the line? And the beauty of Jesus' answer 
is that he doesn't draw a line. He, he, just, he erases all the lines. His answer shows that it's, it's not about lines and it's not about laws. It's all about love. Because if you get the love part right, everything else will follow. Now let's look at his answer in verse 37. Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And that's a big anchor. This isn't just the, the answer to this one lawyer's question. This is the answer to all questions. It's the answer for your questions. If you're trying to figure out this morning um, where you're going in your life and why do certain things happen, if you're searching for meaning and for purpose, this, it's found in this answer. This is it. This is a big anchor that you can build your life on. You were created to know and love your creator. And the reason that you exist is so that you can offer your life back to God as a living sacrifice. See, Jesus takes the focus off of the laws. His answer takes the focus off of the laws. And it puts it on love. It's not about the laws. It's not about how many laws you keep or which ones comes, come, come first. It's all about how you and I love the Lord our God. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. Because rules without relationship is just religion. Rules without, rules without relationship, it's just religion. It's ritual. Obedience without love is, is dead. It's empty. It's idolatry. See, if you get religion, but you don't get love, you've gotten something terrible. And we see this in the news every week. Every week, you see this in the news. You see people who have religion, but they don't have love. We don't want you to get religion here at Moncton Wesley. We want you to get Jesus. We want you to get love. We're not trying to make anybody religious, that's for sure. When Jesus is asked, what is, what is most important? The anchor that he responds with is love. It's in us to love the Lord our God. We are all wired to, to seek out and, and, and to seek out something or someone who is higher than us that we, can, that we can give our worship to. You're wired that way. God hardwired you from birth to know that, that, that ultimate meaning is not found in you. It can't be bought or achieved any other way. And so you're searching. Your searching is made complete when you realize that you were created to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This means to love God first. There will be no other gods before me. We need to love God first. And we know this to be true. There is only room for one to be first in my life. Now, how do I know, how do I know if God is first in, in my life? How do I know if God is first in every area of my life? Well, one way would be to ask somebody who knows you well 
is God first? And do you think God is first in every area of my life? You can, you could ask the person beside you right now, joking, sort of. You could ask God, here's an idea. Take some time. Take some time, find half an hour or an hour, and, and write out your 10 or 20 top relationships, priorities, things that take your time and your money, and then do a prayerful inventory with God. And go over each one of those things slowly and just ask God to reveal to you. Are you first in this area? Are you first in this area? Are you first in this area? What about my marriage? God, are you first in my marriage? Are you Lord of all? What would it look like in my marriage if I was loving God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind? In my finances, what would it look like in, in all of my spending? In all of my finances, what would it look like if God, if you were Lord of all? In my attitude, oh, in my attitude, in my thought life, in my uh, parenting, every area of your life, until you have not held anything back, until you are fully surrendered, 100% fully surrendered in every area of your life, writing down any changes that you need to make, and then taking action on the things that, that where God shows you there needs to be change, pursuing the heart of God. Uh, this, this scripture from Matthew chapter 16, 24 to 26, helps us with this. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. In this sobering verse, and just to allow the Lord to speak to you about this this morning. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? I think we should use that, that question of, from Jesus. I think we should use this when we consider the, the currency of our decisions. When we make our decisions, is this, is this God's best for my life? If this, is this God's will for my life? Is this what God wants for my life? Is this adding value to my relationship with Jesus or is it costing me? Is this a deposit in my relationship with Jesus or is it a withdrawal? Is it really worth it? Is anything worth more than my soul? According to God, no. No. Your soul has ultimate, infinite worth to God. God was willing to pay any price for your soul, and he did by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you. So when Jesus answers the trap question, he chooses words that pretty much sum up his whole mission, the entire story. 
In just a sentence or two, Jesus says it's all about loving God. And the way that you do that, the way that you love God is you, you love him with, with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. It's all enco- encompassing. It's not compartmentalizing, not with part of your life, not just with the areas that are convenient to you, not just in the ways that you happen to agree with, but with your whole life. This is why we want to be clear with people. When we give people almost every Sunday here at Moncton Weston, we give people an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ, to believe in him, to follow him as their savior. And we want to be clear about that. We want people to know that following Jesus is not check off a box. Following Jesus is take up your cross. It's not just a decision that you make. It's a lifestyle that you choose. If you stand at Moncton Wesleyan or raise your hand or wherever it is where you make that decision to follow Jesus, don't hold anything back, but fully surrender your life to him, every area of your life, and love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You need to be all in on this. Jesus, you are Lord of my life. Lord over everything. It's all yours. You can have it all. I will serve you and I will follow you and I will love you and I will worship you and I will honor you with everything that I have, all that is within me, holding nothing back. You will be Lord over every area of my life and every day, every day, Jesus, I will choose you first. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ around me, Jesus in my waking, Jesus in my sleeping, Jesus in my working, Jesus in my speaking, Jesus in my heart, controlling my desires, Jesus in my soul, empowering me, making me more like him every day, Jesus in my mind, uh, transforming me one thought at a time, one response at a time. You need to be all in on that. When we give you an opportunity to, to accept Jesus Christ, it's not, a, it's not like punching a ticket to heaven. It's not like getting a boarding pass. You're saying, this is the way I'm going to live the rest of my life. He's going to be Lord over every area of my life. And, and I, will just, I, will just, I will just focus and concentrate on, on him. If it's true, gang, if it is true, If Jesus is the risen Son of God, then he is worthy of my praise, and he's worthy of all that I have. If it's true, then why don't we run into church? Why don't we we barely, I watched some kids running into church this morning, and I said to their mom, oh, that's a good sight. I was out, out on the front step, and I said, I love seeing kids run into church. And she said, they can't wait to get here. And I said, you've made my day. Isn't that great? Well, some of you old kids need to run into church and not wait to get here. If it's true, then he's worthy of our praise. If it's true. Why? If it's true, if he's risen from the dead, why aren't our offering times times of celebration? Do you ever think when the offering comes, oh, here we go again? Not this again. What do they want now? You've probably heard me say before that uh, one Sunday morning, Gayla and I were at uh, Bishop T.D. Jake's church in Dallas, Texas, and, and, and before they even announced the offering, 
people started jump, literally, I mean jumping out of their seats with their tithe envelopes in their hands, dancing in the aisles, ready to party and celebrate and worship Jesus with their offerings. That'd be a little different than what we do around here. That'd be a little different. We get to trust him with the money that he allows us to steward. We get to keep 90%. That's a good deal. Aren't you glad it's not 50-50? You get to keep 90%, and you and God can do more with 90 than you can do alone with 100. That's the principle. If Jesus rose from the dead, we have to keep praying Moncton Wesleyan and working together and believing that God will help us put a seat on every seat in this room where people can hear the good news about Jesus Christ and believe in him and follow him with 100% of their lives. I know it's the end of June and it's a nice Sunday, but these seats, we don't have all these seats so that you can lay down in church. So you can have a row to yourself. That's not the point. Every one of those seats is a seat where someone needs to hear the good news that Jesus died for them and that he loves them and he wants to have a relationship with them, that they matter, that they value to God. If we can never lose our urgency on this, the day we lose our urgency on spiritually lost people, we're done. Those empty seats should bother you and drive you nuts. We can never lose our urgency about this. Verse 39, they asked for one answer, they got two. It's the bonus answer. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus gives them more than what they asked for. And he throws out another huge anchor. And he says it's both. It's, it's, it's the vertical relationship. You've got to get that one right. You've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then it's the horizontal relationships. And he says, and you've got to love one another. You've got to love each other. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't multiple choice. It's not 50-50. It's both. And when you, take the, when you look at Jesus' life and his ministry and his teachings, it's very easy to see that the way that Jesus defines neighbor is every other living human being on the planet. It's how he, you, look at, you look at where he went and who he approached and who he talked to, and he went, he went anywhere to talk to anyone. The Pharisees would have had a very, very narrow view of who their neighbor was. To them, neighbor, first of all, had to be another Jew. Preferably a religious, law-abiding Jew. Someone who looked like them and talked like them and dressed like them and had the same lineage as them and the same upbringing as them. Now Luke captured a parable in, of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus made it abundantly clear what he meant by neighbor. The same, very similar scene. A lawyer approaches Jesus and asks what he, do, what he needs to do 
to inherit eternal life. And this time, Jesus flips the question and says to him, well, what does the law of Moses say? And the lawyer gives the right answer. He knows the words to say, but he doesn't know how to live it out. And so he knows the right answer, and he says to Jesus, you must love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus says, you've answered right. Do this, and you will live. But the, the lawyer digs deeper because he's, he's looking for a line in the sand. And he says to Jesus, um, one more thing. Who is my neighbor? Like, does that mean, you know, like everybody neighbor? Or, or is there a line where I can, that I can draw? And Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Jewish man is mugged, stripped, beaten, <clears throat> excuse me, and left for dead on the side of the road. And a priest walks by and, and crosses to the other side. The priest walks around the beaten, stripped, mugged Jewish man. The priest just turns away and ignores him. And then a temple assistant, someone who works at the church, also walks around the beaten, mugged, left-to-die Jewish man. And then Jesus says, a despised Samaritan, which would have made the, the Jewish lawyer, oh. He says, a despised Samaritan comes by, the enemy. The last person that a Jew of this era would ever touch. And the Samaritan cares for him and gets down and, 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 and helps clean up his wounds and takes him to a, a hotel, a shelter, and pays his expenses. And Jesus asked the Jewish lawyer, who is the neighbor to the man who was mugged? And he says, well, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, you're right, now go and do the same. You see, we're all God's children. Where you were born or the color of your skin doesn't make you better than anyone else. And Jesus connects these two massive anchors. Love your God and love your neighbor. Because if you don't love God with everything, if you don't love God with all your heart and soul, you won't be able to love your neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor, you can't love God. They're connected. They're inseparable. One more portion of scripture from Matthew 5. Just because it helps us to see this so clearly. Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the second time that we've been here in this sermon. Matthew 5 and verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard the law that says, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, Love your enemies. See, Jesus takes, takes the law and he makes it better. He goes further. He says, I say, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you, you, me, us, you are to be different. You are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this isn't just something that Jesus said. This is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. 
even hanging on a cross after suffering a Roman crucifixion, the most brutal form of execution the world had ever known. What does Jesus say? He says, Father, forgive them. Hanging on a cross. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Mercy and forgiveness are at the heart of following Jesus. And I know this cuts deep for some in this room. Anytime that we talk about forgiveness, I know that there are some who've got some, some really deep, deep wounds. I understand that this morning. I know it cuts deep. But there is something eternally freeing and life-giving when you choose to love like Jesus, even when the other person does not deserve it. Especially when they don't deserve it. And the text that we read this morning, from the one we just read, tells us that when you pray for your enemies, you become more like Jesus. Just start, just start praying for someone you don't like and see what happens. Try it. God will change your heart. Let's look at it this way. Let's illustrate it this way. The first point that Jesus, the first answer that Jesus said to them, he said the most important thing, first anchor he threw out, he says, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. And then the second one is love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. These are the two things. And together these things are a massive anchor that you can hold on to, that you, you connect your life and your faith to these two ideas from Jesus Christ, that I need to love the Lord my God in, in every situation with all that I have, and I need to love all my neighbors, all of them, any other human being on the planet needs to be able to see the love of Jesus through me. That is a huge anchor. And it'll change your life, and it'll change the world. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we've looked into your word this morning, and it's so filled with, with truth and encouragement and challenge. And we know, Lord, that, but we also know that you are here, we know that you want us to be more like you. We know that you want us to love you with, with every part of our lives, with all that we have. And you want us to love others, all of them. And God, I pray that you would help us as a church to not just be a loving church that, that is friendly with one another, but to be a loving church that radically impacts all of our communities, our homes, our places of employment, all of our relationships with the love of Jesus because we're loving the Lord our God with all we have and we're loving others the way he wants us to love. And so Lord, be with us now as we respond to your word and to your presence. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.